These are the notes for Knowledge and Politics 2022, Week 1, Historical Epistemology and the Question of Critique. In this first week, we'll take an introductory look at the idea of historical epistemology, with a view to answering the following three questions. Who practiced historical epistemology? What is historical epistemology? And why are we reading about it at the beginning of this module? We find at least a provisional answer to the first two questions in the piece Historical Epistemology Old and New by Jean-Francois Brownstein that I've recommended and that you can find by clicking on the reading list uh, link in uh, the Blackboard space for the module. Of course, there are different views about historical epistemology and its uh, philosophical credentials. But Brownstein's piece identifies several key points relevant to the work we're going to cover in this module, and I'll outline them here. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge, and in particular of scientific knowledge. Given that science, at least in the modern era, has traditionally presented itself as systematic, it's reasonable to suppose that the task of epistemology may be to identify its structure and, where necessary, to refine it. To put this another way, if scientific descriptions are either right or wrong, true or false, it is in part because there are fixed criteria that claims to knowledge must meet in order to be counted as scientific, and that it is the job of epistemology to tell us what these criteria are. In this way, epistemology is concerned primarily with problems relating to justification and, and legitimacy, which in turn involve reflections on the structure of knowledge, scientific knowledge perhaps in particular. This way of thinking about epistemology has a long history, going back at least to Plato's dialogue, the Theatetus, and you can read more about the various approaches that fall under this description in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on uh, epistemology. Although, note this is an optional thing for you, I'm not expecting everybody necessarily to do this, it's up to you. Uh, Although the approach I've just outlined still prevails in philosophy, historical epistemology, a particular approach to this, goes about it differently. In the course of a work on the French philosopher of science Gaston Bachelard, who we'll read some of uh, later in this module, Dominique Lecour borrowed the expression historical epistemology to underline that epistemology, understood as a discipline that takes scientific knowledge as its object, is not just historical, but essentially historical. This is due to the fact that epistemology, in order to answer questions regarding scientific knowledge, has to consider the history of science. There is therefore a close relation between epistemology and the history of science, although each remains distinct. Brownstein cites Abel Ray, an early exponent, exponent of historical epistemology, stating that the theory of knowledge 
without a philosophical history of science is only a vague ideology or a verbal dialectics. What constitutes a philosophical history of science? What makes a history of science philosophical? We'll come back to this in a moment when we look at Branstein's four features of French historical epistemology, but it's worth noting that when these ideas were first developed in the early 20th century, the stakes were high. The special and general theories of relativity had ripped up most of what science thought it knew about the structure of space and time. Quantum physics proposed account accounts of what happens at the atomic and subatomic level that simply made no sense to our everyday understanding of the world, or to classical physics. And in mathematics there were no clear winners among the competing attempts to demonstrate that it was based on a secure foundation of some kind. In short, there were crises everywhere, as old truths were found to be false or unreliable, and this emboldened critics who could point to these conflicts to undermine the credibility of science as the high point of human knowledge. Ultimately, the ideals of Enlightenment humanism were in the balance, as science was not building on past achievements, but overturning them. Far from growing by a patient accumulation of knowledge, science appeared to abandon the tried and trusted for the radically new and, at the time, untried. A point I'd like to make here is that the sense of crisis accompanying these new developments in science is deepened if one assumes that the claims of science are supposed to be universally true. Thinking in this way means that we inevitably have to switch our allegiance from one universally true claim to another and its history, history of science, resembles a series of leaps as we scramble to a new place of safety each time the secure rock on which we have been standing crumbles into the sea. We can avoid this if the very structure and practice of science is understood to be historical. And what I mean by this is that scientific rationality may depend less on the structure of, scientific, of theories, of scientific theories, the logical form of scientific claims to truth, or even our adoption of the correct methodology, than it does on the way that ideas are developed, incorporated, and give way to one another. Thinking in this way may offer a way out of a problematic situation. Epistemology has often distinguished between internal and external histories of science. An internal history amounts to the story of the logical construction of theories where the abandonment of one for another is always a reasoned decision based on available evidence. On this view, science changes but only in the sense that it gradually approaches its full and perfect form, extending its scope and eliminating error. An external history suggests that one cannot adequately explain the development of science and scientific change without appealing to 
extra scientific factors, such as social and political interests of the day, patronage, who won the best research grants, and various accidents of history. The latter view is a close cousin of the sociology of science, for which science is a socially constructed enterprise. And from here, it's not a big step to concerns over relativism. But these two alternatives both assume that science cannot be intrinsically historical. The internalist account involves the perfection of a fixed ideal, and the externalist account allows its science to be buffeted by events and histories that are not its own. By contrast, historical epistemology proposes that knowledge depends on its history as a condition for its very existence. As we'll see when we return to this question as we discuss Foucault later, the history in question may be neither a history of ideas, nor social, political, cultural or economic history. As such, it offers a I may put it this way, a third way, distinct from both the internalist and externalist histories of science. Brownstein helpfully identifies four features of French historical epistemology. One, without a reference to history, epistemology would become a simple reflection of current science. As he writes, historicity is what distinguishes true sciences from false sciences, such as astrology, whose proper feature is to have no history. What does it mean to say that astrology has no history? After all, if you Google history of astrology, there's a lot to read about different versions that have flourished in different ages and geographical locations. The point Brownstein is making is that while this may be true, the different versions have not arisen by challenging each other and amending their basic principles. Following on from this, number two, the history in historical epistemology is a history that judges, that is critical. Most especially, it judges the past in relation to the present. It asks what we think of the past now. How does the past bear on the present? Even how is the past a condition that underpins the present? As such, it may not be a neutral reconstruction of the past. This notion of being critical is important and reappears with Foucault, in particular in the way that he develops a response to the implication of knowledge with power. While not directly connected to Nietzsche, it could also be traced to the Nietzschean idea of genealogy. Number three, the third of Brownstein's four points. Reason follows the sciences, and the sciences emerge at different times and places in different ways. As a consequence, reason is at once historical and plural, as Bachelard argues. The traditional doctrine of an absolute and immutable reason is only a philosophy. It is, it is an outdated philosophy. 
Bachelard makes a similar point elsewhere when he describes philosophical materialism as empty and as a materialism without matter, precisely because it is too general. Number four. The last of the four points is especially important in view of the work we're going to read later this semester. Brownstein states that for historical epistemology, the history of science is always linked to political goals. Okay, so what does this mean? His example is of the way Georges Canguilhem exposes the consequences of a deterministic understanding of the, of the concept of milieu in a text that we may indeed touch on later in, later on in the semester. To be very brief about this, a deterministic conception of milieu, in which of the milieu in which a living being exists, favours a positivist view of medicine, narrowing, therefore, the terms of my relation to myself and diminishing the, the significance of my own sense of being healthy or unhealthy. This is more compatible with certain views of how to manage public health than with others. And these views, based on a positivistic and deterministic conception of milieu, may in turn have political connotations. Uh, but then, isn't science supposed to be neutral and value free? This is a big question, one to which we'll return uh, later on, I'm quite sure. But I'd like to offer two very provisional views now. First, if rational inquiry is historical in the sense that I've outlined, then it cannot stand above the conditions of its emergence and its practice, which raises the question of its relation to these conditions. If it were simply determined by social, political, cultural or economic conditions, then the way would be open to, relativi to relativism and the sociology of knowledge points generally uh, in that direction. But this is not the approach taken by any of the philosophers, any of the authors that we're looking at, and especially not by Foucault. The relation between knowledge and the conditions in which it emerges and is practiced are complex, and the history of those conditions is irreducible to socio-political, cultural, or economic history per se. And that's a very important point. Second, my second observation here is that Brandstein refers to the essay by Foucault entitled Life, Science and Experience that we'll read later on in the semester. Uh, it was written as a preface to a new edition of Conguillem's book, The Normal and the Pathological. In that essay, Foucault recalls how Conguillem contrasts the political developments of the two broad trajectories of philosophy in wartime France. Figures such as Alexandre Coiret and Jean Cavaillez, who worked in the philosophy and history of science and mathematics, were highly active in the French resistance to the German occupation of France. Whereas the phenomenological movement that included Jean-Paul Sartre and others, for the most part, were not, in spite of what they wrote about engagement, engagement. 
The implication is that there is a deep and still obscure connection between reason and reality, an old philosophical theme. See Hegel in particular. That there is a still a deep and obscure connection between reason and reality, between the rational life of an individual and their practical political engagements. Insofar as this is the case, to refine the practice of rationality through epistemological analyses is not necessarily to shy away from the real world of political choices. Drawing some of these points together, historical epistemology can be described as a history of the present, even a critical history of the present. It examines the historical conditions of knowledge and shows how we got to where we are. The conditions in question are both ideas, concepts, images, early theories, but also their rejection or overcoming. The moment certain ideas or ways of thinking were set aside, and we'll see Bachelard talk about this in week three. As a pluralist, it opens the possibility of a more complex history. Science is not a gradual accumulation. And for some, for example Bachelard, we can clearly speak of scientific progress even if we never expect to arrive at a final true account of the world. And for others, Foucault for example, the very notion of progress becomes problematic. To round off these introductory thoughts, let me switch tack and say a few words about Foucault and the notion of critique. In fact, let me give you a passage from the beginning of the essay, Critique and Experience, uh, Critique and Experience in Foucault by Thomas Lemke. Um, and I'll put this down as, as a reading for the first week. Uh, you don't have to read it all the way through and you may find it useful to refer back to this essay later when we've read a bit more Foucault. Uh, and I've mentioned this also briefly in the, in the video uh, for this week as well. The passage in question runs like this. In his lectures at the Collège de France in 1976, Michel Foucault argues that contemporary critique is characterised by a troubling paradox. On the one hand, since the 1960s, new social movements and political groups have successfully, successfully put on the agenda a series of questions that had earlier been regarded as non-political. These questions included gender relations, the working of the medical, psychiatric, educational and penal institutions, environmental issues, problems surrounding health and the body, and many more. Referring to these contestations, Foucault stresses the immense and proliferating criticizability of things, institutions, practices and discourses. On the other hand, he notes that the foundations, instruments and aims of critique have been increasingly weakened. Classical Marxism and psychoanalysis, which had earlier served as the principal references and theoretical resources for social critique, have been attacked for their universalizing and totalizing approaches, their authoritarian and, uh, authoritarian and normalizing effects, and their inability to address the diversity and heterogeneity of power relations. While there was a sort of feeling that the ground was crumbling beneath our feet, the same seems to be true for traditional models and methods of critique, 
that had proved to be obstacles in the process of subverting regimes of power. In the light of this dual constellation, Foucault concludes, we have to start all over again, right from the beginning, and ask ourselves, what can base what we can base the critique of our society on. And that's all taken from the opening of Thomas Lemke's essay. At this point, I'm doing no more than opening up some questions and here beginning to indicate where the work we'll be reading this semester is going. Uh, here you can see that the idea of critique has become problematic and Lemke underlines that it has become problematic because discourses such as psychoanalysis and Marxism that had been used to develop a critique of contemporary society, for example, look at the Frankfurt School, Wilhelm Reich and prevailing currents in post-war French Marxism, had themselves displayed the kind of totalizing tendency that they were supposed to expose and challenge. It was in part to respond to this perceived totalization that many thinkers in France turned to philosophies of difference and of the other. For example, Lutze Irigaray's feminism, Jacques Derrida's deconstruction, Gilles Deleuze's ontology of difference, Emmanuel Levinas's ethics of the other, not to mention Jean-Francois Lyotard, Cornelius Castoriadis, Jean-Luc Nancy and others. On his part, Foucault's work sets out to develop a conception of critique as a practice that avoids such a tendency. And the view we'll explore in this module is that he can do so by virtue of his connection to historical epistemology and the French philosophy of science. Insofar as this is the case, the notion of critique we find in his work retains links to the rational practice of science as revealed through the epistemology and history of science of thinkers such as Bachelard and Conguillem. While I don't intend to paint Foucault as a traditional rationalist, it may be the case that his work has a more nuanced relation to rationalism than is sometimes acknowledged. <laughs>